Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. So welcome to this edition of the CA Pilot Podcast. My name is Patrick Botter, and I am thrilled today to have Sophie Blanchard with us. Now, there are certain aircraft that ignite our imagination. And I'm thinking of aircraft like the Concorde, the 747, and of course, the most recent addition to that fine trio is the A380. And Sophie is an A380 pilot, and we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. That's very nice of you. Uh, yes, um, was uh, I'm still actually a 380 pilot captain, actually. Yeah. So I won't ask you, like, among AV geeks, right, you're either Team 747 or Team A380. But I won't ask you which one you are. Oh, yes. <laughs> By my accent, <laughs> I'm a full Airbus. <laughs> I was going to say, especially that you're you're in Toulouse right now, of course, yes. where, where Airbus I've is. I've been playing cool. Airbus. I flew just two years going, but really, Airbus is my thing. Yeah, it's I. In my career as a flight attendant, the A320, the A330 are really the aircraft that. Uh, that I enjoyed flying the most. I never had the, I never flown on an A380, funnily enough. But uh, funny story, maybe to start off is, um, as a guy who's been in aviation for so many years, I always sort of laugh at people who sit at the end of the runway to watch aircraft land. And where I am in Montreal, just before landing in Dorval, you come over this one, um, this one on-ramp to the highway, where you're just a few feet above the runway at that point. And I was coming off the highway and saying, oh my God, look at all these people who are checking this out. Like what amateurs, you know? And then the A380 was there a few feet from me. It felt like a few feet. I started honking my horn. I went bananas. I was so happy to see it, you know? So it was, it's not, it was a rare sighting in Montreal at the time. Mm. So it was so exciting because I think you can't help but look at that aircraft in particular and say, oh my God. Amazing. Every morning when I was driving my son to school, I was on time, then the 380 was just landing and just the same. I was on the highway, you cannot stop watching, you know? It's like kind of dangerous actually, but <laughs> massive, so massive from outside. But tell me what it's like to be, uh, to take control of this aircraft. I mean, it's one thing to see it in the air, and it's, it's beautiful in terms of a piece of machinery, but what was it like the first time you, you know, walked into the, into the flight deck and sat down in the left seat and took control? It must have been quite a feeling. Actually, the, the inside, inside the cockpit, it's like a 340 or 330. You know, Airbus, they all build the, the cockpit kind of the same. Uh, no, the most impressive is when you... you you just about to board the aircraft, you know, and you look at that big plane and you're like, no, am I going to fly this big stuff, you know? And the thing is that because the cockpit is a bit higher, I mean, much higher than the other one, you're like, 
overviewing of the whole airport, you know. Uh, it's 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 kind of amazing. And the cockpit is really modern, you know, more screen and it's not the 350 yet, but it's a big transition from the 330. So it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, an amazing machine. Now to maybe we'll go we'll step back a bit, but tell us a little bit about yourself, your career how you got the bug for aviation. It's a long time ago. <laughs> Actually, I was lucky to have a stepdad who was in aviation already. So we made a deal when I was 16, I think. Uh, he said his dream was to have a, a, a kid to be a pilot, you know. So he said, okay, you can go to, to America. You will learn how to fly. You come back and you work for me. So that was just perfect. So I went there straight after I uh, finished high school. Um, so I flew the small aircraft, just, you know, you need 250 hours for commercial. I had 251.3 and straight I went back to Europe. It's like that DC-8 was my first plane, DC-855, which is not even the, the most modern one. And uh, that was an African company, but based in Belgium. So I stopped flying straight away. I just did uh, in, in America, actually, you can, for three-man cockpit, you can fly as a first officer on a commercial pilot. So just a, a few items to do in the simulator, not a full typewriting. So I did that and went straight flying first flights to Angola, I think, if I remember, that we had to divert because Brazzaville airspace was closed and we end up in Centrafric and oh la la. That was <laughs> straight in the, in the job. Uh, so DC-8, and then uh, I flew for two years, and I went uh, to Switzerland to do my uh, European license ATPF. And then I got a job on Boeing for Boeing 767 for two years for that Belgian company, and up on the cargo plane back on the Airbus, I mean, first time, sorry, on Airbus 300-600. And then 9-11 came, bankrupt. And then I was hired by a cargo company from Iceland. Um, the 300-600 again. And uh, flying for many airlines like Air France. We were flying ACMI, which is uh, a mm -hmm. uh, um, So Air France, uh, that's how I ended up actually in the uh, Middle East, flying there. And then uh, I was hired for the national carrier of uh, So you mentioned that you ended up uh, in 2007 in the Middle East. And, um, and then just three years later, you hit what I think is a significant milestone and personal achievement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, I was already captain before going to the... I was really lucky, lucky, uh, because I started playing at 18. Uh, I was the first time upgraded at 23 on the 300, 600. And uh, when I joined the, the UAE career, uh, they took me as first officer for three years. And then they upgraded me on the, the 330 as captain. Um, and that was a big, big state. Uh, especially in this part of the world, to be a female captain. They advertise as I was the first one in UAE. So that was quite fun, <laughs> challenging, I would say. 
And, and it's, it's interesting because here you are in the Middle East and you're taking this huge step in terms of uh, equality and, and uh, diversity and you know, all of the things I think that we talk about uh, today. Um, so what was it like to be you know, the first uh, female captain at your airline? Actually, they were really, really helpful they, they, uh, during the, the, anyway, the first time when I joined, they told me the same thing, you know, we are supporting you if you have any uh, remark because you're a female, uh, we will be behind you, you know, you should not accept that, this is not acceptable at all. Uh, when I was upgraded, that was kind of, um, of uh, showing the world that they are open-minded as well, you know. So I, I, actually, I had no problem. It was because I was captain before, I was expecting maybe, you know, jealousy or something like this. Nothing at all happened. The cabin crew, they were so proud, so proud to fly with a female captain. Oh, that was fantastic. And... Um... Did you feel a sense, uh, a sense of responsibility in any way towards, you know, female pilots in general, uh, perhaps within the airline as well? Of course, I was kind of a leader, you know, because there was some, some female first officer and I needed to prove, you know, that it's working well, it's feasible and, and one day that will be your turn as well. So that was kind of a big responsibility, despite the fact of being a captain on the aircraft. You know? And I would imagine you also became a huge, a huge role model, um, both with you know the pilots at the airline, um, but also, you know, we saw it a little bit with um, with the U.S. Vice President with Kamala Harris. You know, there was a lot of people who said, now that we've seen a woman become vice president i no longer have any limits on what i can do right did you feel that same thing when you were say walking through an airline or had a little girl who was you know maybe a passenger on your flight who saw you and sort of had that look in her eyes like wow you know there's there's someone who who i can you know i can be an airline pilot if she can but it's uh it's even some, you know, where the Shekha, which are the, the like royal family, you know, some I had passenger, woman, female passenger, they came and congratulate me. They say that that's amazing what I did and where I was the pride of the woman in UAE. That's like you said, everything is feasible. We can do it. We can do it. I mean, especially in the Middle East, right? Where, you know, we've seen that women have just started to gain in some countries rights like being able to drive now obviously the uae is much more progressive but it must have been uh, a, a very proud moment as you said for yourself in attaining that in that space in that place yeah yeah, yeah. they did a lot of advertising you know they, they, they put my face on the newspaper everywhere in even in saudi and uh, they were, you know, it was a pride for the country as well. So. And how did, um, how did men, both maybe pilots that you worked with or, 
you know, you said that it was it was really a, a bigger deal within the country even. How did men react to it? There's a lot of different nationality flying in those airlines in the Middle East. So the European people, American, Australian, they're kind of used to have women in the cockpit. Uh, all the Arabs, actually, they were really nice, you know, and they, they were carrying my suitcase sometimes. <laughs> they were bringing me coffee or sweets, and I tried to tell them, you know, I'm a woman, I don't eat sugar. <laughs> <laughs> That's in public, actually. <laughs> but they kept on giving me, you know, the... the, the those people, they always give you gifts and stuff. So they always come in on board with a little chocolate, with all kind of sweetness. It, it, was, it was amazing, actually. Really nice. Did you take that as a sign of respect? Of course. Yeah. Because some people might say, you know, at times, like, you know, a man will hold the door for a woman or or something along those lines. And I sort of see carrying the suitcase maybe along the same lines. But, you know, I know when I hold the door, it's a sign of respect. It's not anything other than that. Is that the way you took those okay. gestures? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 of course, of course. They wanted to show some respect because I was the captain. So I was their boss on board, but we still have to work together. So, you know, they just, I guess, wanted to show me that they will respect me. I'm trying not to be a woman on board. That's the point. That, that's what I, I was always say to everybody. They say, oh, it's hard to be a woman on board. I said, no, on board, I'm a pilot. I'm a woman in life, but on board, I'm a pilot. So I try not to behave. You know, I'm not doing my nails during the flight. <laughs> but they wanted to show me that the, there was no problem. There was equality. And, and they did that good, really. We recently talked to Teresa Claiborne, who was the first black female pilot in the U.S. Air Force. And today she's a captain at uh, United Airlines and one of only 13 uh, black female women who are captains at that airline. And one of the things that she told us was, you know, the way that I proved myself was being a good pilot. And did you did you find that sort of the same the same experience that you showed that you were as you said a pilot on board and you were simply a good pilot because you did your job exceptionally well? Yeah, you know, there's always a, a kind of a competition, you know, because you know, men between men, you know, they always want to show I'm the best, I'm the the, the strongest and everything. Uh, with women, it's different. And people told me, you know, you will have to be even better than men because they will criticize you. For me, I said, when, when I upgraded, I knew everything by heart. So I said, if somebody come and ask me a question, I will be able to answer it. You know, there will be no doubt that as a woman, it's not because I'm a woman or I was nice with somebody, or, you know, something like this, like everybody can think about. So that was it. I proved myself. Ask me the question, I can answer. So that was much more easy this way. But, of course, before that, I had to work maybe more than, let's say that, right? Hmm. to keep quiet. And another thing uh, Teresa talked to us about was being in the crew room, as an example, and, uh, you know, 
being briefed, having someone come up and talk to the the first officer because he's a man, sort of briefing him on something rather than her. And she said she would sit there and watch, and then and then when it came time, say, "Oh well, now you can brief me on the captain." How did you did you ever have situations like that? And how did you deal with them? Of course, I had that. The worst, uh, I had that when I was flying the cargo, you know, because cargo, it's another war. Uh, when you enter a, a plane with cabin crew, there's all, already female on board. But in a cargo plane, you know, it's kind of, especially in Africa, or, you know, it's not the most cleanest operation you can imagine. And some, some ground personnel, you know, they just came on board. They didn't want to talk to me. And the problem is that the first officer answered them to the point that they need a signature and the signature can only come from the captain. So the guy, he just gave me the paper, even not looking at me, <laughs> but he had no choice. <laughs> That's what. How did you take that? Like, how did you, you know, how did well, you? I took, I took it like funny, you know, because what can you do? You know, this is the mentality. So if this person is thinking like this, what can I change? And I have no time to explain to him. He can see me in the seat, uh, the left seat with a uniform. He should understand that I'm flying the plane. I'm not there just to be pretty, you know? So if he cannot understand that from the beginning, that's it, you know, for me, it's funny. But there's some planes that I cannot even go out of the plane, you know, to do the walk around. It's not possible. And you haven't picked, or maybe picked is the wrong word, but you haven't worked in the easiest of places either, right? So your experience in the Middle East was a good one. But when you go to Africa and whatnot, there are places where gender rules are still massively traditional and they're not as progressive as we like to think we are, you know, uh, in the West. Especially the, 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 I've been to airports uh, in Africa, like, Nobody would ever go, you know, doing bringing that cargo there. I remember once I was uh, we had to stay one week in Kinshasa, and during that whole week, I met some other pilots and they asked me if I wanted to go with a um, what was that plane? Uh, uh, 580, I can't remember the name. Anyway, I went to a tiny little airport called Chikapa and they, they said on the radio that a female pilot was coming, you know. I was just a passenger, but I was in uniform just to observe the flight. And uh, when I came, the whole village was there waiting for me <laughs> just to see a female pilot. And they were like, oh, fantastic, there's a female pilot. They could not believe that exists, you know. That was nice. <laughs> that was an experience. But having... having um having lived uh, in Africa myself and knowing that some of the, um, some of the, the roles are different. I can only imagine the looks of some of the, the girls as well, because you, you must've changed their world completely, right? You must've just broken their heads must've exploded when they saw you. Right. Because in their mind, their idea of what a woman does, which in many ways may simply be to be, a mother, a wife, and all of those things, and have a very traditional role, and all of a sudden, here's someone who flies an airplane, travels the world, all of these things that they can't dream of. Mm -mm. 
But you know, even even in Europe, huh, when I was after the 9/11, when my company bankrupt, I was looking for a job, and I just had I just had my daughter, my uh, my first child, and I had a chief pilot from one company. I can't remember the name, and he asked me, okay, uh, uh, what is your situation? I said I just had a baby, you know, and that was in Italy. And the chief pilot told me, but you should not be flying. You should stay home with your baby. And I told him, I need to feed my baby. I need to have a job. And that's the only thing I can do. And it, I, I, I didn't get the job. Unbelievable. Some people, even in Europe, they don't know. You're a woman, you need to stay home. Are you surprised, though, at the speed with which things have changed? And, and maybe from your perspective, it hasn't been as quickly as it should have been. But when I was a flight attendant, I started in 1996, which, you know, I suspect puts us more or less in the same age range. And, like, people who flew, the, the, the like, old guys with white hair flew the 747. Uh, a fem- we had female first officers and female captains, but they were few and far between, enough so that you would really notice it when when you were flying uh, with a female captain and first officer. And then when I started doing this podcast, I, I was in business aviation for a little while after I was at the airline. And then when I started doing this podcast last year, the first person we interviewed was, uh, was someone who flew the 747. And she must have been, she was, listen, she was late 20s, early 30s, I would suspect. And it was... And maybe it's because of the gap in my time, I was just so amazed at how times had changed that, you know, that these phenomenal aircraft were now being flown by, by young women who were as capable as, you know, the, the older gentleman with white hair that I was used to. It was, it was, a, it was a stark change for me. It is like the, the one of um, who was that one one of my last flights we did a, a representation flight with a female Emirati female first officer. Uh, I think we were the same size, which is less than a meter sixty. <laughs> and when the people we saw us going out of the plane, you know, she had the view and. We were both of them, you know, I'm blonde, she was brown hair, she was Arabic, I was French. And people, they had eyes looking at us, you know, in front of that big plane. Yes, we are both flying, both, only two of us flying that plane. Mm-hmm. But not, not it's getting better. People, they, they're still surprised, I would say, but they accept it much more than before. You know, when I was, I started on the DCA, that was really, really, really not the case. And I think we saw recently, uh, was it Air India that did an all-female, uh, it was the longest of their flights, if I'm not mistaken, and it was an all-female crew. And I understand you did something similar when you were in the Middle East. Uh, we did uh, for the um, International Women Day. We did a London flight uh, with only female. That was fun. But you know the ambience, I, if I can say that, I don't know. But the ambience in the cockpit, only female. It's so relaxed, so relaxed, so relaxed. No competition, 
information and, and we know what we're talking about. I mean, I would say that it's like um, intuitive. It's like we don't need to challenge ourselves, like sometimes happening with men, you know? It's just so easy, so easy, only women. So do you think that, that no matter how much things have changed, men still feel like they have to prove something to you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's even if we are pilot and we do a job, we are still a male and a female, you know, and this relation will never change, never change. When it comes to a decision, you know, sometimes, so what I mean, they're really nice with me, but I'm still the, the boss, kind of. Yeah. So when you have to take a decision and we don't both agree on the same, I'm sorry, but I'm the one responsible at the end. So I have to put the point, the end on the discussion. And sometimes... <laughs> man or woman, man or woman, the four stripes mean the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the fact that it's such an impressive machine. But what in your mind makes that aircraft, I mean, beyond its size, obviously, is, uh, is incredible. But what makes the, uh, the A380 so special to fly? Um, the technology, I would say. You know, this aircraft, as I flew the 300, 600, the 330, the 340, another 380, uh, the, the technology is getting better and better, you know, the automation and the 380 is so well, well done, you know, you just see everything is accessible. You don't need to turn around or go there or this or that. Everything is in front of you. Everything is made for you to understand, to get it simple. And it's, it's really well done. And we have a nice table with <laughs> the keyboard on <laughs> Does it feel as big to fly as it is? No, at all, at all. I mean, compared to the 340-600, which was a huge plane, to, to fly, uh, you know, like every time you turn, you have to wait, and then it starts turning. The, the 380 is so reactive. People say it's like a 320. I never flew the 320. But even compared to the 330, you know, 330 is really a glider. You need to calculate, you know, you don't divide by three for the altitude to distance, you divide by four. But the, the 380, it's so reactive. It's, it's fantastic to fly, really. One of the most impressive moments in my career was I got to uh, I got to land in the jump seat on an A330, and what struck me is how such a small input on the stick created this, and it seemed effortless from the pilot's perspective. And I was just so impressed because I think that we all have this vision of you know having to turn this big aircraft, and it it should take more effort maybe than it does. But they, they corrected it, like I said, compared to the 340, especially the 600, they, they really improved the, the, the plane, the control, I, I would say. Would you say the A380 is a complex aircraft? Uh, it's a complex because like, there's much more fuel tank, there's four engines, so everything is multiplied. And, but as it's really, the automation is really good, you kind of, if everything's fine, it's, it's okay. But 
when you start dealing with the fuel system, you know, if you lose some pump, there is so many pumps and okay, but anyway, we're trying for that. But no, technically talking, it's 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 nice. It's really nice. They, they improve every every plane, new plane they do. There is improvement of the the, the mistake they did before, so it's 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 good. What would you say are the biggest challenges to operating an aircraft uh, like the A three eighty? Oh, the three eighty biggest challenge is of course the number of passengers. Um, on the route I was doing, because we are flying a lot over the ocean, so far away, because four engines were not under the ATOPS rules, so we are quite far away from any airport sometimes. And um, as UAE was a hub, people did travel before getting to UAE and travel again. And they use this aircraft to do ultra long range, which is flights above 12 hours, I would say. And with 500 passengers, we had 500 passengers inside. There's always some, it's like a small village, you know? There's always a problem somewhere. <laughs> also, the number of cabin crew you must have, like you're not dealing with, uh, with a small crew here. You're, you know, no, 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 it's a minimum, minimum of 18. And uh, usually we have 21, 21 cabin crew on board. Wow. That's a lot. I thought you might talk about the size of the aircraft being a challenge, especially when taxiing. You know, we see the new triple seven is going to have uh, folding, uh, folding wings, yeah. and I'm sure there's times where you wished you had those too. Especially, you know, some airport like London, that you have to, uh, if you parallel those those taxiway where you go and take uh, runway zero nine, you have to self. Uh, separates. If there is a 747 on the parallel taxiway, you cannot go. But we don't see the, the wingtip. That's the problem, you know. We have cameras above, under, on the side, everything, but not for the wingtips. So <laughs> sometimes you're already like, oops. <laughs> it must be nice, though, to be the king of the airport as you're taxiing. Yes. <laughs> I would have said the queen, but I think that the queen uh, is reserved for the 747. So we always say the yeah. queen. Is the guy, so that's why I say the king. Um, what do you think um, passengers liked most about the A380? What they are saying, all of them, is that the treat is really quiet, really quiet, comfortable, and they feel space, you know? Then the cabin is depending on the company, of course. Uh, the space between the seats and everything. But because it's a large aircraft, you know, especially when you board, you see it from outside, then inside it's large as well. So they don't feel oppressed, you know, they, they, they really like that. And apparently, really quiet. And I think that a lot, it, it had a lot of firsts in aviation, especially if we talk in the Middle East, uh, for the Middle Eastern market, you know, with, with mini apartments and showers. And all of these amenities that really probably before were reserved for private jets that we were now finding on commercial airlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, my uh, ex-company, we had the full top, was 70 seats for business class, nine apartments, and we had the residence. A sh private shower for the residence and a shower for the first class. 
Uh, that's kind of nice, but they're still flying with the 400 passenger below. You know? So if we have to divert for somebody, we divert for everybody. Yeah. That's the difference. So here's my, here's my, one of my last questions to you is we often see these great amenities and, you know, a residence and all this kind of stuff, but were those always full? Business class full all the time. First class, I would say most of the time full. Uh, residence was quite actually, yeah, I was surprised. People are flying, you know, on, a, on 14 hours flight. It's if you have the money, you put it in there because you have a special butler for you. Service is really different. Uh, like I said, the only problem is if there's a diversion for somebody, he's going on the diversion as well. But the service, it's really worth for a 14 hours flight, I would say. Having worked in both airline and business aviation, I always, uh, we all, I worked in marketing and business aviation, and I often wondered what's the line between that kind of service and, you know, your own, you know, you know, taking a private jet, which cost is now less of a factor, right? So I was just wondering, it's uh, personal information. We usually at the very, very beginning ask about, what is, uh, but we jumped into things, so it doesn't matter, but what would you say is your top aviation memory, the thing in your mind that it, you say is probably like the best moment in aviation for you? Something I will never, ever forget is the first time I landed in Sydney. That was early morning local time, six o'clock, the sun just rise, and after... Yeah, kind of 14 hours flight, I was at the end of the world for me. And, you know, Sydney is just at the edge. And that approach was gorgeous, you know, sunrise. And, and I'm like, I cannot go, okay, you can go further, you know, to New Zealand or something. But because Australia is such a big land, you know, and oh, I was at the end. For me, I traveled around the world at this time. But then we have to land because <laughs> we cannot go that's, that's an amazing, and, and as well, another one was my first uh, transatlantic flight, actually. Uh, we positioned to Los Angeles, but we came back operating Los Angeles, Brussels, and we took off from Los Angeles. We had the sunset over the Grand Canyon. Then we had all Northern lights over Canada, and then we had the sunrise over Greenland. Oh. And for me, I, I, I said, okay, I can stop now. <laughs> I've seen the most beautiful thing on earth. But it's, it's funny, uh, if I think of all the flights I've done, some of the nicest scenery is actually uh, Greenland and Iceland. I, there's something about it that there's not, in theory, there's not much to see, yet it's, it's just breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, when you see the, the, the iceberg and... and in the middle of the, the land, you see those blue, really light blue lakes. I mean, you see so, so much thing from up there. It's some mines over Australia, and they are the shape of a heart. Uh, oh, uh, flying over the ocean, you know, every little cumulus under the cumulus was a rainbow. So there was hundreds of little rainbow over the sea. Oh, wow. And you cannot explain. You have to see that. You know, when you explain that to people, they say, okay, that's nice, you know, but when you see it, it's, wow. 
I know that you've been impacted by COVID-19 and, and that right now you're not flying. And I don't want to end on a, on a sad note just because your positivity about flying and the A380 and everything in general is just so is infectious. Like it's, uh, I think you're both inspirational and just a breath of fresh air in terms of your spirit. And I have no doubt that you'll be back uh, in the flight deck uh, sooner rather than later. And normally we ask people, oh, what's the, you know, what do you, what advice do you have for people who are currently, you know, looking for their job? But you're in a bit of a different case because you are currently uh, looking, for, <laughs> looking for a role uh, or for a pilot job. What are you doing to sort of maintain your positivity and to, you know, to, to what are you doing to try and find your next pilot job? Um, if I can summarize, actually, I lost my job last summer in July. In the beginning, I was really surprised, but not, I mean, really surprised that myself lost a job as a pilot, not that the treaty was not flying anymore. No passenger, of course, the treaty was granted. Now it was, I had to leave the UAE, go back to my country, you know, and try to think what I'm going to do with my life. If it doesn't start, that's the only thing I can do. And the only thing I do well, actually. And after a few months, you know, you realize that this is not our fault as pilot. This is the situation. And when I tell people I'm an ex-pilot, they say, no, 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 you are a pilot. And I am a pilot. And, and after months, I, I accepted it. So I'm just a pilot on standby. That's the way I express it. I just, which is good as well. If you can take the positive side, everything I couldn't do when I was flying, you know, because you have commitment. I'm doing it now. I'm doing all kinds of, I'm doing sports, I'm reading, I'm taking a nap. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself the time. Anyway, I cannot do anything. We cannot do anything. Vaccine is coming, so hope is coming back. Uh, what I said to a friend of mine who just got fired, I had the discussion three days ago, and he said, you know, I'm really down. I don't know if it's going to come again, da, da, da. I said, you know what, what we've been, what we've seen, what we've felt, no, nobody, nothing, no, any situation can take that away. So you're still free, you're still in your mind, the, the memories are there, and, and you should see the bright side of it, because that will be there forever, forever. And I think that those are the perfect words to end on. I think that you've, uh, as I've said, I think that what you've achieved and the example you've set and the, the role model you are to little girls everywhere, to me, is completely inspiring. And I'm so happy we had the, uh, the opportunity to speak to you. And I hope that someone, you know, we always do things and we don't know why sometimes, but my hope for you is that someone sees it and says, that's the person we need at our airline. And as I say, I'm sure you'll be flying before you know it. Thank you so, so much, Sophie. It was uh, phenomenal to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I'll just remind everybody, and maybe you too, Sophie, that go to airside.aero. Lots of great resources and information and jobs board and all sorts of stuff for 
pilots who are looking for their next opportunity. Thanks again, Sophie. Take care. <laughs> Bye. CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.